Welcome to Bancroft's Broadcasts, the school podcast where we talk to staff, parents and pupils to find out more about the school and its community. This is the place to keep up to date and in touch with our school. So let's get into this episode of Bancroft's Broadcasts. In this episode of Bancroft's Broadcasts, we're meeting Sim Carer, who is Head of Learning for Life at Bancroft School. Sim is the person to speak to when it comes to the way we help children understand topics like health, relationships, citizenship, and everything that goes into their understanding of the wider world in which they live. Let's meet Sim now. Hello there, Sim. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I am looking forward to hearing more about your role at Bancroft's and the role you play within the school community. So to start with, I wonder, Sim, could you give us uh, an overview of what your role is at the school and maybe how long you've been at Bancroft's? So I've been at Bancroft's for a year. This is my second academic year here. Um, And I did actually do a term here teaching religious studies in 2019, um, just before the pandemic. And I currently teach RS and I'm also head of learning for life here. Now, learning for life, that straight away is something I'd I'd like to know more about because that's not a term I've heard before when chatting to other teachers, other people at the school. What's learning for life all about? So uh, the area of personal, social and health education falls within learning for life. And this is an area that became statutory. That means it is compulsory for all secondary schools um, in England to teach this. It became compulsory um, about 18 months ago. And At Bancroft, there's a a timetabled curriculum, a lesson in some year groups once a week and in others once a fortnight so that we can deliver this area. And as it wasn't previously statutory, lots of different schools delivered it in different ways. Um, But now it does form part of the curriculum. And we also have off timetable enrichment activities that help us to deliver that area of the curriculum. I see. So sometimes we hear terms like social education and enrichment and these sorts of terms and maybe some of us aren't always clear exactly what they mean Uh, and I'm hoping maybe you can help us understand maybe that whole area of education perhaps a little better. Yeah definitely and I think when it comes to learning for life and personal social and health education it's split into three broad strands. One of those strands is about health and well-being and that will cover mental health as well as physical health. One of it is living in the wider world where we cover areas such as prejudice and discrimination, uh, laws which students should be familiar with before they leave school, and also the area of careers, although at Bancroft's careers is uh, managed by um, someone else. Uh, learning for life and careers do overlap. And then we also have the relationships in sex education, which comes under learning for life. Gosh, so there's quite a lot going on there. This sounds like quite a busy area, quite a a packed part of the curriculum. Yes, it is, but also a really important area for the students who come into school at the age of 11 and leave at 18. And we have to equip them with the, the skills, the knowledge, the understanding, the aptitudes and the attitudes to ensure that they can be really successful and active citizens when they leave and that they're really clear about how to take care of their physical health, their mental health, and to have some really healthy and positive relationships, as well as spot when relationships, whether they're romantic, whether they're friendship, whether they're work relationships, to to know where there's red flags and where there might be issues that they need to address. You're already helping us, I think, appreciate how this could be a really important part of the education that a young person receives. 
I'd like to learn a bit more about the things you've told us. But maybe before we do that, can we hear a bit more about you? Why did you become a teacher in the first place? You mentioned that you used to teach religious studies before entering into the area that, that you're working in now. Tell us a bit about, about your career. So I didn't ever actually want to be a teacher when I was younger. I went to university to study philosophy and English literature, and they were passions of mine, both of them, which is why I did joint honours. I couldn't decide. And I did have quite a lot of questions from my, my parents at the time thinking about well what are you going to do when you're older what sort of career will you have what will you do for a job and obviously at that age I was very confident that everything would be fine I didn't really want to go into teaching because my mum was a teacher uh, my nan was a teacher and uh, it just felt like uh, something that I wouldn't want to do but after university, I managed to secure a job at a very small charity called the Institute for Global Ethics in London. I'm actually from Birmingham and I studied at Manchester. So I moved down to London for this job and um, doing that job, working in the field of ethics, I came into contact with a new curriculum subject that was coming into the curriculum in 2000, and that was citizenship education. So very quickly, I started managing a project that was bringing ethics and values education into this new curriculum area. I was working with quite a few other educational charities who were working in that field, as well as the Home Office and the Department for Education, to develop this curriculum, create resources and to train teachers. And it was during the time that I was delivering training to teachers that I started thinking, actually, I'd really like to teach these materials that I've come up with. I really would like to teach them myself. So I think it was about four or five years into my career that I decided to train as a, a teacher, initially training within citizenship education with English as part of my PGCE as well. And from there, I went into a, a very large inner city London comprehensive. And that's where I spent the first 10 years of my teaching career in three different large inner city multicultural comprehensives, which I really, really loved. And in those schools, I ended up being the head of departments for PSHE and moving up to an assistant head teacher role. Mm -hmm. And it was only after I'd had um, my second child that I thought, actually, this is quite tough going at the moment. And I decided to move into consultancy work. So mm -hmm. for the 10 years before I came to Bancrofts, I, I wasn't actually teaching. I was running an educational consultancy specialising in the area of citizenship education, religious studies, philosophy for children and PSHE. So working in the sort of sphere in which you developed your your, your skills initially at that time when you first thought, yeah, maybe I could be a, a teacher too. Yes. And actually, a lot of the first clients that I worked with were those organisations that I'd been working with before I became a teacher. So Really, it was, you know, a great opportunity to hone my teacher training skills. I did a lot of teacher training, did a lot of student workshops, wrote a lot of curriculum resources and also worked with a range of charities that um, wanted to develop resources and uh, workshops that they could deliver to schools. So worked with a lot of different schools and organisations during those 10 years out of teaching. So returning to that consultancy type role after some time spent teaching, did that help you in that? Having been a teacher for some time, did it help you understand more about what teachers need out of this sort of work and this sort of consultation? this sort of conversation? I think it was really invaluable to understand the constraints that schools are under, the pressures that teachers are under, 
but also more importantly to understand the issues that the students are facing and to know what types of resources, activities, workshops and trainings are really valuable to the students and which sorts of things we adults think students need but don't necessarily work in the setting and aren't necessarily relevant to student lives. So without having taught, I don't think I would have really been able to be successful as a consultant. Now that's really interesting. Could you tell us some more about that? What are the assumptions or the mistakes that we as adults and professionals can sometimes make when we assume what uh, what the children will find valuable? I think sometimes when it comes to an area such as learning for life or personal, social and health education, as an adult or even as a parent, we think that the best way to influence behaviour is by using shock tactics or extreme examples. For example, we know that alcohol is really harmful on many different levels. Mm. We know that there's a legal age limit that takes those into account. But if we present to young people that the issue with alcohol is, if you drink it once or twice, you'll become an alcoholic, you will have loads of health impacts, you'll get liver cancer. The students know that that isn't really true. We know that it's harmful, but using it once or twice won't necessarily lead in an, to an extreme response. It's over time that the negative impacts build. So it's better to try to present the information with all of the facts so that students can understand the mental implications of using alcohol, the reasons why people might use alcohol to support mental health issues that they might have, for example, or to manage anxiety, and then to think about alternative ways in which you can manage those negative feelings rather than using alcohol, as well as talking about the health implications and the long-term risks. Um, that's usually a better way to influence um, behavior than to just use shock tactics that may not necessarily be true. I see. I, I think many of us listening can probably remember those sort of shock tactics perhaps from our own education, be it alcohol or drugs or relationships. And it sounds to me like you're saying there's now maybe a more nuanced more informed approach that's going on? I think if we really think about education as a whole, not just in learning for life, what we really want to do is to give young people the skills to be critical thinkers, to be able to search out information which has been fact-checked, which isn't fake news, um, to look at the facts, to understand where the research is, to even question statistics to think about, well, who was actually questioned in these statistics? Where do they come from? Which populations do they represent? And then to be able to take all of the evidence and the information, evaluate that themselves, and then be able to make informed decisions about the choices that they make. And we'd want them to be able to do that in any sphere of their life, particularly when making decisions about areas where there might be risk to themselves. But even if they're using social media, we want them to be critical and informed thinkers. So I think within the curriculum now, it's really about building the skills that the students need, as well as giving them the facts and the knowledge and the information that they need to make these decisions about their health, about their relationship, about their careers, about their future. Now, this is interesting because something I'm learning as I chat to you here is that maybe there's a closer parallel than I realised between this area of study and the other subjects that get taught within the school, the, the dare I say, more conventional topics, ideas around, you mentioned critical thinking there and examining data and looking at sources of information and, and making decisions for themselves based on their research. This is a much 
broader area of study than I perhaps realised. Definitely. And I think if I use as an example, a lesson from the curriculum on the Equality Act. It's a lesson that we've looked at in thirds, we look at it in removes, we revisit it in the sixth form. And within that, we've got a few different areas that we're looking at. They need to have the knowledge base of what the Equality Act is, what the different protected characteristics are, why they're protected. We then need to delve into areas such as prejudice and discrimination and stereotyping. Then we need to think about why prejudice happens, where stereotyping happens. Then we think about the impact of these different areas. And then additionally, as they get older, we actually look at hate crimes within the UK and we look at the statistics of reported hate crimes. And then we take that even further and say, well, look at the time period for these reported hate crimes. Um, for example, the time period we looked at recently fell under COVID. So then we need to consider how representative we think these figures actually are. Do we think that they would be higher or lower when we look at them again a year later? And then we also look at the reason why it's not the full picture, because these are only reported hate crimes. And we look at the different protected characteristics and consider within those different groups how likely people are to report crimes and why they might not report crimes. So it's quite nuanced in the way that we approach a subject. We're not just telling them the law about the Equality Act. We're bringing in lots of different areas which then will be relevant to them when they leave school. And obviously, the protected characteristics are there to protect everyone. So everyone's going to have at least one of those protected characteristics. Of course. You mentioned social media a few minutes ago, and perhaps in our, in our current society, in our current environment, that's not a place where every conversation gets nuance and gets texture and gets critical thinking. Do you think social media brings challenges to children in terms of making decisions, uh, perceiving risks in the world, dealing with the sorts of things that, that you've been discussing? I think it definitely does. And for me, it was a very stark difference coming back into teaching in 2019 when I'd left teaching before the advent of social media and smartphones in your pocket. So there is a very big difference in terms of what students are exposed to, what students uh, might see and experience online, the way that social media has an impact on mental health and the way that social media influences relationships that we have with other people. And I don't think it, it can really be ignored. And we delve into social media at different age groups in different ways. So in thirds, we're thinking about algorithms and how algorithms actually influence what you see. When we go into removes, we start thinking about their digital footprint and their online reputation. All the way through, we look at cyberbullying, we look at fraud online and how to keep yourself safe online. And then as the students get older, we look at age appropriate different impacts of social media and how they might be used in different ways to influence how we think and feel. And again, if we think about um, the way in which we present this, what we might want to do is say, don't use social media, don't go on this website, don't look at this, that's really harmful, it's going to destroy your self-esteem, it's going to have an impact on mental health. But we know that's not realistic. So it's much better to say, these are the critical thinking skills that you need to have when you consume social media. These are the ways in which you can protect yourself from being in an echo chamber, for example, and not realizing that you're hearing extreme views that are just being repeated back to you. So we want to give them the skills to be able to use social media in a way that is 
positive and helpful for them because there are many positive aspects of social media, but also to be able to know when there's a concern, when they think they might be overusing and where to turn for help if they do see something that upsets them or if they've been exposed to some sort of harm. This is really interesting because, again, it's reminded me of conversations I've had with colleagues of yours in other episodes of Bancroft's broadcasts when they've been telling me about not just telling children, here are the facts, here are the things you need to know, but really encouraging them to develop that mindset where they want to find out, they want to explore, they want to decide for themselves. The relationship between the areas in which you work and, and the rest of the curriculum it sounds like there's quite an overlap. Is that a reasonable thing to say? Definitely. And I'm not working in isolation in this area. I work with the pastoral staff very closely. Um, I sit within those pastoral committee meetings. I, I know what's happening within the school with students and what their concerns might be. Um, I also obviously am part of the academic department, so I know what's being taught there. But we are also very responsive. We want to be relevant to the needs of the students in this school. I look very closely at the local health data and the demographic within the school to see what's being reported locally as a concern to ensure that we can address the needs of the students who are at this school. I also look at what's happening in the news, have a look at what um, concerns there might be from parents so that we really can react to what's happening and preempt things that might be coming up in the future for our students. So the curriculum changes. We've, we've got a set curriculum for the year, but we respond. We can respond to what's happening to ensure that we meet the needs of the young people as and when they have a need. I see. So if a particular issue becomes problematic or people become conscious of a particular risk that might be in the news or, or, or in the local environment, you're dynamic enough to flex to that and ensure those conversations happen with the children? Yes, we do. And there is a locally produced health data, which comes from the local health providers that is very specific to each different area. So I use the data from Redbridge, Epping and from Newham to, to support us in planning the curriculum based on what is the need area for this age of students. Now, Sim, you've mentioned also you have a background and a specialism within religious studies. Is that something you, you currently teach at Bancroft's? Yes, I do. And um, one of the reasons I actually wanted to come back into teaching is I really missed working with young people. And when a position came up at Bancroft's to teach and uh, I was just really excited to be back working with young people. I'd really enjoyed my time working in consultancy and I do still do some consultancy work as I'm a part-time member of staff. I really miss the day-to-day -day interaction with young people. And I'm so glad that I took the step to come back into teaching because it's incredibly rewarding. And the students here at Bancroft's are such a, a joy to teach because they are so curious about what you're teaching they're so interested in what we're covering and they've got so much to share as well of their own experience and i have taught english previously but particularly when you're teaching religious studies the students themselves have got so many ideas themselves that they can contribute to what we're doing and i do see quite a, a good match between the skills that we teach within learning for life about critical thinking which is pretty much the same skills that we want to foster in religious studies as well so for religious studies, it really is an important part of my teaching here. Now, you mentioned you've also taught at other schools. Is religious studies the kind of subject that looks approximately the same at every school? Or, or does the different schools have their own approaches to it? What's it like at Bancroft's? I think one of the best things about teaching religious studies is that the syllabus for religious studies is actually agreed locally uh, 
for the area by a group of specialists within the area who work in the area to decide what the best teaching is for that school. Um, at Bancross, we've got a really interesting program where part of the curriculum is learning about religions and the other part of the curriculum is actually based in philosophical thinking. And of course, my background's in philosophy. So that's one of the parts of the curriculum that I enjoy teaching the most because it gives students the chance to really question the world around them, to think about what other philosophers and other thinkers and other religious leaders have said, but also to then philosophize themselves as well and to think, well, what do I think about this question? How can I evaluate this argument? How can I search for truth and meaning within this range of different theories and ideas? Again, we're hearing about really useful overlaps and commonalities, I suppose, between the way that religious studies is dealt with, the way that learning for life is dealt with, and the way that other subjects within the school that we've heard about previously are dealt with. It sounds like religious studies has changed quite a lot, perhaps, since you or I were at school. I think the religious studies, the, the best thing about it is it's very unique to each school. They have the opportunity to teach different areas and to focus in on different areas of teaching. So you can choose which religions you focus in on. And you can also bring in this philosophical aspect, the philosophy of religion, philosophy of knowledge, the philosophy of ideas into what you're doing. Why is religious studies important. Some may question it, some may ask you, why does this belong in the curriculum alongside other subjects? Why does it deserve the, the role it has within the, the time spent? In fact, that is the first lesson that we do in thirds, asking ah. them that exact question. And we get them to consider why it's important. And if they don't think it's important, they have to obviously justify their argument and search for evidence and examples to support what they think, which is helping them to see that this is the skill that we need. I think the reason why it's so important, whether you are religious or non-religious, is because we live in a world where there are a wide variety of different beliefs, whether they're religious beliefs or non-religious beliefs. And we are going to operate in that wider world when we leave school. We might have a, a very closed perspective of experience in our younger years, whether it's to do with the social circles that we move in, um, the places where we go to school, and that might not be truly reflective of uh, multicultural Britain. And I think it's really important for students to understand that many people's behaviours are influenced by their religious beliefs, and for other people, their behaviours are based on their morality, their ethical framework, and that this influences what people do and how they behave. And when you're in the workplace, when you look at the politics that are happening in the world, when you try to understand events and responses to events, without having an understanding of what people believe and why they believe that, and how that can influence their behavior, I think that, that would mean that really, um, it's going to be difficult for you to move forward successfully in multicultural groups and to really understand politics. I see. So whatever religious feelings an individual may or may not have themselves, you're saying that by understanding other people, other people's perspectives, other people's worldview, we can build better understandings and progress in, in the world. We're having healthy conversations and as you said before, healthy relationships. Yes, and I think one of the key things that we also mention in religious studies and, and in Learning for Life is that we sometimes feel hesitant as adults to have conversations about ideas and issues because we're not quite sure of how to use the correct language so that we don't unintentionally offend someone or to say something that might be taken in the wrong way. And actually, these are skills that you learn and within religious studies, within Learning for Life, we actually talk about 
the language and approach that you can use to ensure that you have meaningful conversations with people about their beliefs and ideas, but without perhaps um, stepping over the line into offending and, and upsetting people. So it's more about inquiry as opposed to arguing. So Sim, Sim Carer, Head of Learning for Life at Bancroft School, you've been really helpful here today, helping us understand more about what Learning for Life actually means, what it is, and how it fits alongside the rest of the curriculum at Bancroft's. Thank you very much. Head of Learning for Life, Sim Carer there, explaining to us how the children of Bancroft School benefit from exploring the ideas, the data and the choices available to them within our world. We covered many things, taking in topics as broad as alcohol, religion and social media. But most importantly, we looked at how children benefit from critical thinking and the opportunity to reach their own informed conclusions. Thank you, Sim Carer. That's it for this episode. To find out more, check out the school website, bancrofts.org. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. So in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.